0: They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on Cinema. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Writers on Film. My name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Hannah Strong, who's just written an amazing book about Sophia Coppola and her films. Uh, It's an in-depth look, um, probably one of the first uh, real studies of Coppola, and it's just a a really candid, interesting, and uh, vibrant, and a beautiful... It's an Abrams book, so it's a beautiful-looking book as well. Uh, So it comes highly recommended, but you'll understand all that once you hear me and hannah talking about it remember if you enjoyed the episode please like subscribe leave reviews if you can that helps spread the word our numbers are great at the moment and but they can always be better there's an audience out there which is is much bigger and and all they need to do is tune in and find out about it and they'll be they'll be happy as larry and they'll thank you they'll thank you if you put them in that direction so before you do any of that though please enjoy the conversation
2: I find my brain just kind of turns off about 5 30 so yeah. it's like if I'm having to do anything where I need to be like eloquent it's best to do it before that point. I did a record once at 9 p.m and I was just like guys this is going to be like unintelligible
0: <laughs> oh the bar has been raised <laughs> now, now we're gonna have to be eloquent a...
2: <laughs> yeah now I've said it I'm setting you up for like um some great conversation and I'm like oh shit I don't know <laughs> long time since I wrote this book
0: <laughs> when did you start it actually
2: I think it was May 2020
0: Right, right. God, yeah. yeah so almost three years ago. Yeah,
2: almost three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It feels um, like a really long time ago. Because yeah. I mean, because of the pandemic, you know, it's like I was doing it all throughout all the lockdowns, and then I think I finished it October twenty twenty one. So it was quite like a quite a long process.
0: Right, right. And you sort of uh, yeah, I, I I was trying to think of some clever sort of Sophia coppola way of visualizing that did you drift through the writing of it in a gauzy <laughs> <laughs> I
2: um, I did it actually kind of it was mostly chronological right um, and not in terms of her work but in terms of how the book is structured so I started with um, the Virgin Suicides and then I did the Beguiled and it, it was yeah it, I, I had an order mm. but um, it wasn't the order that the films were made in because we decided that would be too that would be too simple, that would be too boring to to do it that way. Um, so we decided to go thematically instead.
0: Yeah, I think that was a good decision because it also. It, I mean, again, I'm not. I'm trying. I'm not. Hopefully, not being too too. Uh, um, idiotic, but um, you know that idiosyncratic sort of personal approach isn't isn't that far away. I don't think it's too much of a reach to say that that's similar to how. Sophia herself sort of addresses her films?
2: I don't think so I I especially feel that each of her films has a kind of personal slant I mean obviously like Lost in Translation she said it was kind of based on her experience growing up and uh, moving away from home for the first time and living in Japan and then um, On the Rocks she said is kind of inspired by her relationship with her dad but not really inspired by that and somewhere she said was drawing a lot from Experiences she had on holiday and on work trips with her dad. So, I I felt that there was a kind of call and response element to her work, where she was drawing on her personal experience, and I was drawing on my personal experience and kind of how her films informed my life and my like interest in cinema without being too self indulgent. But then, because she hasn't made that many films, it felt like it just made more sense to try and kind of um group them by these recurring themes and i think all of her work does have a lot of overlap in terms of the theme she's dissecting and um it was the only hard part of like pairing them up or i mean this this technically three in the celebrity and excess chapter but Mm. murray christmas is kind of an outlier anyway but the only difficulty was kind of deciding which would go where because there is you know kind of you could put um the Virgin Suicides in the Fathers and Daughters category. If you wanted to, like, there's there's just kind of um, different places things could go. Um, but in the end, this was kind of the order that made the most um, sense to me to kind of approach it from a different a different creative um, perspective than just going straight down the line. And because Abrams, who published the book, had just done the poor Thomas Anderson book with Adam Neiman, mm. and he did it chronologically by when the films were set, which I thought Mm. was a really, again, a really cool way of looking at it. So we were just kind of keen to do something maybe a little bit different uh, that would be fun for the reader, hopefully, to kind of like navigate the films in maybe a different way than they had come to them as a viewer.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting, that's a good point as well, because otherwise... It, the expectations. I mean, I I've already watched them in order, so uh, <laughs> the expectations are uh, uh, might not necessarily. You know, it might be more creative to do it the way the way you did. I think. Um, could I could I ask as well that the so so. Because you start this book in a really candid and open way, and you you draw parallels with your own lived experience in a way that I found very um, courageous and and sort of fascinating. In to 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 the process, um, what what's your uh, sort of story in terms of how you how you ended up writing writing about film? What what was your entry into the world?
2: Well, um, I as a Okay, I mean, to start at the very beginning, the the first film I ever remember seeing at the cinema was Chicken Run, and I thought it was the greatest film ever made until I, you know, watched another film. (laughs) and was like, (laughs) oh, no, this is now the greatest film made. But that was, like, that's the first very clear memory I have of being in a cinema and thinking oh my God, this is incredible. This is this is where I want to be all the time. And I didn't get to go very much because it's, it's it has always been quite expensive and we were not a very well-off family and the cinema was quite far away as well. So it, it was a real effort to go. And then it was like, my mum hates the cinema. She's not at all a fan. So it would be, who's going to take her? You know, that kind of thing. So um, I ended up getting a lot of VHS tapes out of the library. And that was kind of where I really like, became obsessed with cinema and became obsessed with movies. And then as I was growing up and I mentioned this in the book a little bit, but uh, I was ill quite a lot of my teens and films were really the thing that I had that I retreated into and put all my energy into. And at the same time as this, I was reading a lot of um, film magazines. I was reading, I had an empire subscription. I had an enemy subscription, which is different, but um, you know, so I was kind of immersing myself in, journalism and particularly print journalism was something that I really loved I loved the kind of um, uh, what's the word the tangible nature (laughs) of it I love being able to hold something in my hand and um, it was always just a very glamorous thing to me this idea of writing about movies it seemed so far away from anything that was going on where I lived in in my kind of uh, small town so it was always like that was the the big dream was like oh yeah maybe one day I could do this and um then I kind of knew it was it was a very unlikely thing to happen you know I I think I know I knew I had a very early um perception that this was like not a job for like everyone (laughs) you know it was it was only only the kind of very lucky people got to do it so I was very, very pragmatic in a way and um had it in the back of my head but my my mom was very much kind of she was supportive but she was like you can't just say you're going to be a film writer you're going to write about movies you you need to do something else so um she told me to go and do a degree do, do do an English degree and then you can decide you know what you want to do with that so so that was what I did um but always like it was I was writing film reviews in my journals when I was a kid I was always just like obsessed with this idea of not only watching films but talking about films and analyzing films I was always the one who wanted to go and like have a a coffee after the movie with my friends and like talk about what we just seen I was I was really like I, I liked watching them, but I couldn't ever kind of leave it at the cinema. It needed to be like more for me. So um, I think I drove everyone a little bit insane with <laughs> like the fact that I, I could never just like watch a movie and just enjoy the movie. I had to kind of like pick it apart. But um, Sophia Coppola definitely was one. I think I was about 15, 16 when I first saw The Virgin Suicides. And it that is like, I think for for a young woman, it's like the, the kind of... Um, perfect age because you do see that film and think oh my god this is my life like regardless if you if if you've had that experience that the film is depicting or not you just think oh she understands me she understands being a teenage girl and uh, that was definitely like I was one of those those teenagers that was just innocently kind of smitten and instantly felt like I'd met my soulmate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) well obviously doctor you've never been a 13 year old girl
2: Exactly, exactly. This is what I would say to my therapist at the time like you know I was like you have no idea how bad it gets, you know. <laughs> um but yeah, it was it was kind of like I again like I I I, do, I say it in the book a little bit but she really gave me this language to express myself which I don't think I necessarily had and I think seeing her films, seeing um probably David Finch's films at the same time, seeing Martin Scorsese films for the first time, were these kind of like, I mean, it's such a cliche, but like a lightning rod moment where it's like, oh, this, these things that I'm watching on screen are this kind of visual um, representation of, you know, kind of how I feel in my head and all these kind of like um, difficult, big, scary emotions. And mm. more than that, they were an escape. I think like they were so beautiful (laughs) Mm. um these films especially sofia coppola's films and and that i just i think instantly kind of appealed to me this idea of getting so far away from um the setting that i was in what is your what is your small town uh so i i'm from a, a small town outside of sheffield um called called stocksbridge which i think has about like 5,000 residents or something it's very Mm. small and at the time it was even smaller we've had kind of some development since then but it was like an hour to get into Mm. Sheffield and all my friends lived in Sheffield so I was very kind of isolated and I have a brother and sister but they're not they they like films but just very very different sorts of films for me so there was never a kind of we didn't really have that in common or anything and I think I was just like a really lonely kid who felt like an outsider which is like the perfect kind of uh, target audience for for i think a lot of sophia coppola's films
0: mm, absolutely i mean I, it sounds very similar i mean, we lived in uh, a, a tiny village outside of barrow Furness, and i used to always joke to people i don't live in the middle of nowhere we have to get a bus to get to the middle of nowhere <laughs> you know it's not that- yeah.
2: Yeah that was the set yeah we I mean we used to regularly have um there was a road to kind of get to Tesco and like my mum and I would get in the car and drive and we'd have to like stop on the road because there would be a farmer with cows and we would have to like wait 10 minutes for the farmer and his cows to pass and I mean you know like th- living in London now for as long as I have I'm like wow that was that was kind of crazy <laughs> that was a, such a, a part of my childhood like queuing behind it like uh, farmyard animals but um it's I I I think it it builds character in in film critics having to having to really like fight to be part of part of that world.
0: <laughs> well, so how did you get lucky then? How did you become one of the lucky ones?
2: Um, I I think I probably had an easier time of it than a lot of people, just in that I knew straight away this is what I wanted to do from kind of the age of about fifteen, and then I was very dogged about going about getting getting where I wanted to go so I the first thing I did that was kind of along the lines of film criticism was um I was on the youth jury at Sheffield Fest when I was 17 and that was the first time that I'd kind of been in a you know it's the first time I'd ever gone to a film festival and I just thought it was the most incredible experience of my life and I'd written an essay about Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man like that was the thing that they um read and were like yeah this this kid (laughs) this kid knows what she's talking about so um that was like the gateway drug and after that I was just kind of like yeah this is it this is all I'm going to do now so I went off to university in Leeds and Leeds has an amazing yearly film festival um just called Leeds International Film Festival and it's so great and I did volunteering with them and through that I was able to watch loads of films and then I would review the films for the school papers uh, for the university paper and um that was like another kind of massive um moment for me just realizing that like it wasn't even that I had to necessarily go to London although I think that was always the goal in my head but um just knowing that there was kind of a world of like cinema around me um was very kind of inspiring and meeting all these people and meeting these filmmakers through during Leeds International Film Festival and just really feeling that there was a way to get to where I wanted to go to be a film critic and we had speakers who would come in, journalists who would talk to us about you know working in the arts and um, that I found very kind of um, bolstering I think actually having kind of lived experience and and my family are not like I come from a family of like science people they like science and Mm. and kind of not evidence so so me wanting to kind of be an artist and be a writer was very um they they're absolutely lovely people but they just had no kind of like frame of reference so it was really good that I was able to kind of meet these people who were very like open about their experience and open about how I might get there and then I went away for a year and did um a year abroad in Berlin and that was very like lot of self-led learning so it was great Mm. for me because I could just direct everything towards film which is something I was interested in doing um even though it was an English and history degree I was doing Mm. I was just like I'm gonna try and sneak in as much film as possible which is what I did and I did an internship whilst I was in Berlin with uh, a film journal out there it was only a sort of three-month internship but again that was like I mean it, Berlin generally just like such an amazing city for cinema and obviously it has the festival that was my first international film festival and it was again kind of extremely overwhelming and I feel like all these tiny experiences really like just kept that little like flame alive until mm-hmm. I was able to graduate and move to London and take a job that had nothing to do with film but uh, it was a writing copywriting job so I, I felt like it was kind of a step in the right direction and then Eventually, I did some freelance uh, bylines whilst I was working at the website that I had this copywriting job for, and then wrote something for Little White Lies, which was kind of always my big dream as a teenager. It's like, oh, one day I'd like to write for Empire and Little White Lies, and I haven't got Empire yet, but have got <laughs> Little White Lies. And uh, after that first byline, it just so happened a job came up about six months later. And I applied and I remember sending my mom a Facebook message saying, I've applied for this job with Little White Lies. I don't think I'm going to get it, but it's really good to just do an application and like get yourself into the group. <laughs> and then I got the job. So, uh, that was, yeah, that was, gosh, uh, six years ago now, five and a half years ago. So um, it's a lot, I think a lot straighter forward route than a lot of people end up taking. A mm-hmm. lot of my friends, a lot of my peers kind of didn't get, that experience of just going from one job to another job and then being there. Um, But I yeah, I'm very aware of kind of how fortunate that was and how um, lucky I was that Little Allies kind of took a chance on someone coming just kind of straight out of uh, a kind of very corporate copyrighty job uh, with only a few kind of film bylines. But I think they really had a sense that this was something that I was my whole life and was something that I, I, 24 hours day lived and um I think that's definitely kind of like shown <laughs> mm. over the past five and a half years and then the book came gosh have about two and a half years after that so I'd been with little like those two and a half years before we started talking about um doing the Sophia Coppola book.
0: Wow wow that I mean I, I do think there's um I mean, my experience of talking to so many people from festivals and from journalist backgrounds and and obviously uh due to this podcast largely uh people who've mm. written books um it, it just seems like there there are so many ways to get there, you know there are so many roads and and they all involve luck to to some extent, and they all involve uh you know enthusiasm, but other than those two things. Um, everything else could be. It feels like there's there's an absolute. Spectrum. Oh yeah,
2: I always say when I get asked about this, by, you know, it's, a lot of the time it's college students, university students, or sure. just young people who are really interested in getting into film writing. And they'll ask, you know, kind of what, how would you recommend I go about getting into film writing? And and it's such a hard question to answer because I don't. Re- I think now more than ever there's kind of no real way you have to do it and like you say it's it's that enthusiasm and that kind of luck um that are going to be the biggest factors but I mean and hard work as well but um I was I'm always surprised at like kind of hearing how people end up doing film journalism and you know there's people that come from completely different backgrounds and then people that come from other parts of film whether that's programming or whether that's working in marketing or something they just kind of discover a real interest in film journalism but yeah I think it is like it's easier in some ways and harder in others I mean obviously constantly kind of scrambling to get work i think a lot of Mm. the time and Mm. budgets are constantly being cut and places are shuttering and it it does feel like cultural journalism generally is such a precarious uh, place to work but um i i do feel that um in a lot of ways it has become easier if you have that kind of tenacity (laughs) which i definitely did and, and just kind of kept it always kept at it and always thought like eventually you know kind of even in the depths of it being like such a, a slog to get these pitch emails sent out and to deal with kind of the constant rejection I was like no you know got to keep at it and then eventually it'll pay off and it, it, it has done but it it's yeah it, I think burnout is so easy and if you get burnout mm. before you start doing it then, <laughs> then you know you're kind of um you're never gonna uh, get there but I yeah I mean I I always am very like honest about it as well I'm always a kind of like I don't think there's any point in trying to um disguise how difficult it is as an industry I think like you've got to go in just with no no um expectations and 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 Mm. hope eventually to find some way there
0: But I mean, it doesn't surprise me, actually, that you said you came from this copywriting um, background um, because I I was having a conversation. Actually, last week I was talking to Wendy Mitchell about this and uh, and she was mirroring something that Wendy I'd told me, the two Wendys of of film criticism (laughs) had told me right at the very beginning when I started writing. And I remember Wendy I'd saying, um, uh, uh, respect the deadline and respect the word count. And you'd be surprised that that puts you in like the top, <laughs> the top three percent of everybody writing if you do those two things. And then, and then if you're good at writing as well, then. That, but, but her point was kind of like to get to this stage, everybody's kind of good at writing, but not everybody respects the deadlines.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, I mean, as someone who sees it from both sides, as an editor and a writer, it is just kind of amazing to me how many writers i'll work with who who don't respect the uh the the uh, deadline and and will send me a draft that is vastly over you know obviously with word counts sometimes you can kind of eke out if your editor is going to be okay with you sending something a little bit over or not i i have a 10 percent rule so you can do 10 percent over or 10 percent under but if you're doing it anything under or anything over that i'm gonna ask for you to, to cut it down because i i just don't have time <laughs> i don't have time yeah, in my yeah. day <laughs> Um, but yeah no I mean that's the most useful advice I was ever given because that's what people remember as well like they remember if you're if you are an easy person to work with and if you're Mm. kind of reliable reliability is such a like it's like hen's teeth in this industry getting people that will file copy when they say they'll file it and file it well and it'll be clean and I won't have to kind of do six rounds of editing on it I can just do one round or two rounds it's it's like It's, yeah, I mean, and I talk to other editors as well and, like, it's everyone, regardless of what area of journalism you're in, this is the same thing that comes up. It's just, like, making a the person you're working with or working for's life easier is kind of the thing yeah, that we yeah. will, will always be like uh, remembered it's a bit like school in that respect you want to kind of like make sure you're making it as easy as possible for the person who is trying to give you money or in the case of school a good grade so <laughs> it's very uh, basic things
0: uh, absolutely absolutely but i think it's worth it's worth sort of reiterating and plus uh, i'll take the opportunity on this podcast to say i'm always on time always time. <laughs> i'm sure hannah is as well, uh, well yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, now you're on the other side of the fence you'll be able to you know you'll 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 have learned that lesson you know a million times over so let's get let's go back to sophia coppola and mm. and how um and and uh, yeah, your relationship to her—you've already sort of given us a, a, an inkling, an idea of how she spoke to you as a teenager and as a girl, um, specifically that teenage girl experience. And I, I mm. what I, what I was really interested in with reading this book is my own reaction to. Obviously, I'm coming at it from a different lived experience, um, and I've I have definitely been guilty in the past of dismissing. Some of her work I I I, mm-hmm. I loved uh, Virgin Suicides and I loved uh, Lost in Translation And the other one There are other ones like um, The Beguiled and uh, Bling Ring and Somewhere that I, uh, Marie Antoinette I really liked as well But um, that I feel I ought to Revisit because mm. I feel I feel that I've definitely Glided over those in a way Which is too um casual and 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 too incurious if that makes any sense and it, it was interesting that you mentioned that adam nyman's book about paul thomas anderson because in a way they're really exact contemporaries and and they've made more or less the same number of films i think just a you know a rough a rough thing did you feel when you were writing the book that you were sort of ad- addressing you know, an audience like me to some degree, that there was a, a, an element that you had to... yeah. You know, I mean, I know she's got a lot of fans and admirers out there. I don't mean mean to undervalue that at all. But a, a critical consensus that was perhaps not as in her favour as as would be for, say, a Fincher or a Paul mm. Thomas
2: Anderson yeah oh god yeah i think definitely um she is considered more a mixed bag as a filmmaker than than the other directors in the series because we by this point we had the coen brothers paul thomas anderson and david fincher which is an incredibly strong roster but Mm. they are all pretty much considered to have maybe made some people would say no bad films but others would say maybe only one bad film whereas i think sophia coppola people are much more kind of critical and Mm. some of that comes from the fact that you know she is uh, a nepo baby as the kids say now but um I think a lot of that is also you know it's it's because she's a woman and because I think she deals with a very very traditionally feminine and um uh women's themes and she does have a very kind of ornate and a very um girly kind of aesthetic a lot of the time so I did go into it kind of aware that Um, I had to write for the people that would be buying this book primarily which is people that love her and want to kind of read about her films but then yeah I did feel there was this kind of um, big chance to like set the record straight about these films that I felt maybe a bit unfairly maligned and it is interesting because I wasn't coming from a position of I absolutely love everything she's ever made and I won't hear a word against it I was very when the bling ring came out I didn't like it Uh, when Marie Antoinette came out I was teenager and i didn't like it because i didn't think it was for it was serious enough i was very into my history and i didn't think i didn't like the idea of this you know kind of pop poppy like um slightly anachronistic take on Marion air so i i was very took that very seriously and i uh, didn't like it but um were
0: you, were you quite sniffy about it
2: yeah, I think I was. Yeah, I think I just had this idea in my head of period pieces needing to be kind of dour and serious. And obviously, like, you know, that changed massively. Like, the older I got and the more I was exposed to, I think, seeing um, Amadeus for the first time, mm. it was kind of like, you know, unlocked a lot of what uh, Coppola is doing in Marie um, Antoinette. So um, it was kind of this, like, process of not only trying to address previous criticisms of her by um, the kind of the tastemakers but also look at my own kind of biases and how those had formed and why my opinions on things might have changed throughout the years why I suddenly thought that The Bling Ring is actually a really good film and why I thought that The Beguiled is maybe not quite as good as I thought it was when when I saw it for the first time so I think the thing I wanted to capture was not only how much her films mean to me personally but I feel like how much they maybe have been kind of shortchanged or just not given enough kind of like critical context um or just kind of getting a a sort of like well-rounded image of like who she is as a filmmaker and who she makes films for and how they have been received and I didn't want it to feel kind of like exclusionary I didn't want it to feel Mm. that I was trying kind of saying you know, one way or the other, like, oh, she's not making films for you, you don't, you know. I was just trying to kind of give the best possible insight and write in a way that would be entertaining and interesting for people, regardless of kind of how interested they are in her. And I mean one of the things is when you're writing a book like this, you have to do do so much with the text. It's not like writing a film review. It's parts, you're doing a history of the film, you're doing a history of Sophia Coppola, you're doing analysis of the film, analysis of the critical reception, evaluation and it's just it was such a kind of daunting task to try and get in all these different elements and do it in a way that would be engrossing for like 50,000 words and you know that is something that I was very um, conscious of was that it's quite it's quite a difficult needle to thread especially when most of my life, I am just writing like 500 word
0: reviews. Mm, mm. I, I mean, it is funny as well, I think, that idea of revaluating something when you have to properly invest time and attention in it. Um, you know, I, I found myself doing that in the past where I I watch something and, and my sort of Twitter reaction will be, meh, rubbish or two stars or whatever. And then <laughs> I'll have to write a proper essay or feature on on the piece. And I'm looking at it and I'm going no, it's really interesting because I'm giving it much more time and I'm thinking about it much more. But I don't want to sound dishonest, like I'm only liking it because now I've got a job to write about it, you know? Yeah, I
2: think I think it's one of the kind of pitfalls of social media now is that we, we do – that instant reaction is so rewarded and <clears throat> not only rewarded by um, – are kind of you know um endorphin rush when people like it but like um you know that's what prs and people are kind of looking for they want your like your first reactions and mm. things and it, it just means i think that sometimes um we're, we're backed into a corner a little bit and it does mean that people can't feel like they can't change their minds and I especially notice it at film festivals, I think, which is obviously Mm. where a lot of Sophia's films have premiered, um, where people come out and the first thing they're doing is sending a tweet or, like, you know, sending their review off to their editor. And it's one of the reasons I really liked going to Venice for the first time, because you have Mm. that little kind of pocket of, like, eight hours or something where it's still not a lot of time to think about it, but, um, you know, it's more time than you would ordinarily get. And it just feels like the process has been speeded up so much um even before I was doing this job I'm sure but like you know it, everything just has such a, sh- a short shelf life now and I think that um Sophia Coppola has really benefited from uh re-evaluation and kind mm-hmm. of you know reappreciation and also I, I I think I do talk a little bit about this in the book but one of the things that came up when I was talking to her collaborators was that a lot of them were saying the people that were watching these films as teenagers are adults now. And they're the ones that are writing the reviews. They're the ones that are Mm. writing the criticism. So, um, it's not that like the films might have ever been bad. It's that, you know, they just kind of the people writing about them were not the kind of target audience. And mm. um that I, I found kind of you know, maybe in, in ten years' time there'll be people writing about films that I didn't like that that they'll be kind of reappraising them and I'll feel really old and like out of touch <laughs> with the youth. But um it it's definitely like I think she's someone that um has had a, a kind of reevaluation of some of her lesser films, but in a way, like stuff like The Virgin Suicide, stuff like My Internet, they were always very popular with a certain like subset of of people. And certainly growing up as I did on the internet, like images from her films and kind of her as a filmmaker and her as a personality were always like so popular on um, uh, Tumblr and kind of on live journal and all these like kind of internet, um, uh, what's the word
0: like micro, um, micro blogging,
2: my, my micro, no, what's the word? Oh, um, I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but
1: you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results
2: may vary. Subcultures, that's the word. Um, She was always very popular with kind of a specific type of internet subculture. So um, it was nice to kind of finally get a chance to give her the kind of reverential like auteur approach that I think, you know, we usually see reserved for like the Scorseses and the, uh, the Francis Ford Coppola's of the world, for example. Um, Mm. It felt like she's been, you know, doing this for um, almost 30 years now. So it, it was kind of a, a ripe time for it especially because now we're seeing filmmakers who are inspired by Sofia Coppola like Charlotte Wells was saying how much somewhere had inspired After Sun and I was just like wow it's you know the the kids that made these films are going to be making movies of their own now (laughs)
0: so oh absolutely yeah I I think that was one of the best things about the 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 book or about my again I I think you know my own experience of approaching it is going to be different to a lot of people's Mm. Uh, but um, it really made me think i've got to rewatch these films because they are because <laughs> there are a bunch of them that i've seen only once and there are a bunch much more so than uh as, as 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 we sort of have indicated previously sort of like um contemporary equivalent male you know that's underline um filmmakers so you know i have i only saw somewhere at venice i know i uh when it premiered and I never saw it again and I remember sort of being yeah it was okay but being disappointed by it as compared to to you know um her previous films um but maybe that did I mean when you're this is something you'll recognize I'm sure from like festivals you know being disappointed because a filmmaker has not made the the film again that you liked <laughs> is not necessarily the best way of approaching a, a a piece of art you know you shouldn't you know you might need to go back and actually watch it just with a with a clearer head so that's certainly a film having read that chapter i wanted to uh, i wanted to revisit
2: oh i'm so glad because somewhere's definitely um it, it, when i was younger before i uh, you know before i was kind of as immersed in film as I am now, um, I would have said The Virgin Suicides was my favorite, but definitely right. now somewhere is the one that I, I think is um, my favorite of her films. But I think it, yeah, it was difficult for her coming off the back of, um, of making uh, Lost in Translation, which is obviously like such a huge hit, and then making um, Marie Antoinette, which kind of bombed uh, both critically and uh, commercially. It wasn't, wasn't quite. Um, a disaster, but I think it was certainly considered a disappointment by the studio and and by um, Sophia, only in terms of how it was received. I think you know mm. she was happy with what she did, as she should be. It's a great film, but um, yeah, I think somewhere was kind of a difficult one, and even like you know it won the Golden Lion, but she uh, not the Golden Lion. Is it, Yeah, it's the Golden. Yeah, it's a Golden Lion. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I was doubting myself as all these the animal awards. Golden <laughs> <Griffin>. <laughs> exactly. The Golden Griffin. Exactly. Silver Bear, Gold Lion, yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, it won the Golden Lion, but even then people were saying, oh, she only won because Quentin Tarantino was the head juror and he, and they used to date. And it's like, she can't even have that without someone, you know, kind of sticking their oar in and saying that it, she's only got it because a man said she could have it. And um, mm. I, I think, like, it's such a, um, a, 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 a quiet film. It's like 70 pages on the script, which is kind of, unheard of and um it's this film about filmmaking film about hollywood that is so unassuming and so um melancholy and and not dramatic at all it's not you know there's no moments of kind of high drama in the film like the most dramatic thing that happens is he falls down the stairs and breaks his arm at the beginning like it's Mm. you know it, it it's full of all these really quiet moments i think not only is it this really like insider view of hollywood but it's this father-daughter relationship, which I think we've started to see more of now in films like *After Sun*, wow. um, where it's all kind of in in the silences it's all in the things they're not talking about there's no big blowout confrontation like thinking of the wrestler where uh, there's the argument between um randy and stephanie like towards the end you know this is all very kind of like introspective and um it's, very a, bit el- jim,
0: it's a bit jim jammushi isn't it as well that yeah, sort of like yeah. the scenes between the scenes if you like
2: yeah there's a lot of details for you to fill in and and mm. i mean I, I believe that she's very good friends with jim jammush that doesn't surprise me that he would be a kind of like huge influence in fact There's a lovely, um, there's an episode of the TV show What We Do in the Shadows, um, the vampire mockumentary uh, in which Sophia and Jim have a cameo. They're like having drinks together at this vampire bar and I just thought that was just such a like such a wonderful little a little moment and also that's, shows that they, they clearly have just got such great senses of humor like that they that's one of, that's my favorite
0: that. tv show that that is like <laughs> this year i've just discovered that and we've just binged it me and my daughter and we're just like wow this is the it's best it's
2: so good and that's why I, I love that about fucking guy <laughs> just... i that's another thing i love about sophia is that i think she's very aware of pop culture and right. she's very kind of tuned in and we see that in all her films obviously with the music and the costuming and um her kind of music video background but um even like in on the rocks you know she's got like this character who's carrying like um a shakespeare and son's tote bag a shakespeare mm. company rather and um has a bernie stance sticker on her door and she's like a paris of you t-shirt and it's it's very trendy but in a kind of if you know you know way which i think again always appeals to um, me as like a pop culture lover but also very much appeals to teenagers because as a teenager all you want to do is be cool really and being into sphere Coppola films, I think, is like you feel like you're part of a club, even though there's like millions and millions of people who love her movies. <laughs> Being able to pick out these little references and these little like, oh yeah, I know, uh, I know that those uh, the uh, La Rudy macaroons in in Maron's You know, you you kind of feel like you're you're part of something. You're part of a little gang. It's the same with I think people like Fincher, people like Paul Thomas Anderson, people like Tarantino, especially like all the kind of like Easter eggs in their films that you feel like you're kind of mates with the director because you understand the reference
0: yeah red apple cigarettes and uh let's have some more foot shots
2: (laughs) exactly exactly
0: (laughs) yeah i i mean that's that's one of the things uh it's one of those things as well isn't it In in a male director it'd be considered sort of style and Mm. and it would be a signature and you wouldn't really, you know, I mean, people do criticize Wes Anderson, I suppose, for being so Wes Anderson-y, but at the same (laughs) time, what do you want? You know, do you want him to be Michael Haneke? Because (laughs) we've already got one of those. Um, And the same thing with Sofia Coppola. I mean, I think that the time when you sort of criticize her, maybe the most severely, or or at least you hold her to account a little bit more is in terms of her treatment of race um, Mm. in Lost in Translation and The beguiled and i'm i'm with you there i think there's i think it's just a like uh i think you 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 mentioned how she sort of says i'm not racist i i love you know japanese people or whatever and of course you're not racist like consciously but that doesn't mean you've not imbibed in a reproducing so, a certain racist tropes or racial stereotypes
2: Yeah absolutely yeah and and it did feel important to me as well to bring in other voices and to and to look at critics who were calling her out at the time because they did exist you know a lot of Japanese critics particularly wrote like this is quite offensive and here's why and uh, with The Beguiled there was a lot of amazing writing by Black writers about The Beguiled and about how problematic Sophia's treatment of the South was and particularly her removing uh, a mixed race character from the script which I think Sophia herself probably admits now was not the right call to make um it's almost this thing I think with the beguiled in that she was so afraid to do it wrong that she decided she wasn't going to do it at all which is just no excuse really it's just it's so if anyone can kind of afford to go out on a limb it's Sophia Coppola and she just Mm. kind of avoided that whereas Yeah lost in translation is such a product of its time and people say that sometimes as a get out of free but I I get out of jail free but I didn't want it to feel like I was giving her a pass because I think if you love someone you are able to kind of process their flaws and process where their work might be problematic or might have issues and that was something that I really like I felt obviously I benefit a lot from white privilege the same as she does. And I felt like it would be remiss of me to kind of not address that within her work. And I think she's kind of made some concessions over the years about um, where she may have got things wrong, but she's very, she wears kind of uh, that privilege on her sleeve a lot of the time. I think, you know, she, this is also a reason she kind of gets criticized because she makes films about, how hard it is being rich and famous and uh, for some people that you know that kind of doesn't work at all and for others um, it really does because I mean I've, I've said this a lot over the years but I think when you're so used to not seeing your own experience on the screen you make I think more allowances so you know I was watching these films growing up and I was thinking to myself like well obviously you know I'm not rich and I don't live in this beautiful house in Michigan, but I know what it's like to be an incredibly depressed teenager or, mm. you know, I kind of know like to have a difficult relationship with my parents. So, you know, just because these films are very specific doesn't mean that they don't have things that I think are incredibly universal and incredibly uh, meaningful to a, a, a vast range of, of people, not just teenagers. I think that um, there's many, many people who relate to things that come across in her films and, you know that was why I felt it was it was really important. I kind of try to do justice to um, the many like layers, and I didn't want it to seem like it was just this hagiography going, "Oh, she's so wonderful, she's so great." Because I mm. think every every filmmaker makes mistakes. Every filmmaker um, is worthy of kind of addressing you know you need to address those things and talk about them and and kind of find a path through them and hopefully hopefully that's what i managed to do but um yeah i was really really conscious i didn't want it to be just relentless praise of her
0: no absolutely i think you did totally and i mean you, you if if we're going to accept people's um, you know, social re- realities. Um, then some of those social realities are going to be outside of our experience. They're going to be limiting. They're not necessarily all going to be, you know, exactly what we agree with. I mean, I was thinking of her in terms of, you know, there's a filmmaker I don't get on particularly well with, but I do admire his work. It is Eric Roma, and mm-hmm. Eric, Eric Roma's just utterly uninterested in anybody who's not sort of wealthy bourgeois, you know, white. Uh, you know, he's quite come out with some quite racist statements in the past as well. But, um, you know, that's his thing. That's his, that's where he's from. That's what he's Mm. doing. And, Mm. um, uh you know i you don't have to ignore it you can comment on it but it's not like it's not necessarily a disqualify that's i think that's yeah. the point i think that's and that's going back to what you were saying earlier about um twitter and and social media and whatever it's this idea that uh we can slam doors on people and disqualify them because of some perceived shortcomings mm. which i think is problematic
2: yeah yeah i i agree and, and, and we mentioned Wes Anderson earlier who's obviously mm. like, he's he's again like a contemporary of Sophia's they basically started making films at the same time and they're good friends and he makes films I think about a very specific type of person most of the time uh, or a very specific world view and um, I don't think we need him to be kind of going out of his way to tell other stories I think that it would be preferable for the filmmakers who are better placed to tell these stories whether it's yeah. about um other races other parts of the world or you know sexualities whatever I think it would be better for the filmmakers who do want to tell those stories and do feel placed to tell those stories get the opportunities rather than just like expecting that every filmmaker has to tell every story um and I, I you know obviously I think it's nice when filmmakers challenge themselves to talk about new things in their work but I don't think it always works and I I also think there is this idea of like who gets to tell these stories, you know, just because someone has a position of influence in the filmmaking world, I don't think it's necessarily right that they get asked to do certain things and to make Mm -hmm. certain films. So I think that um, there is kind of something to be said for like staying in your lane a little bit as a filmmaker and just doing the thing that you are good at and, doing it very well and i think there's room enough to have filmmakers like sofia Coppola and like was anderson and like whoever else who are just doing their kind of thing and they have their style and their set of interests that they want to talk about and then there's room for kind of um everything you know all these other perspectives hopefully i hope i hope that's the way it is that's i mean very idealistic of me but um i one of the things i i do think and i think sophia does it to an extent i think she could probably do it more is when these filmmakers help lift up these new voices Mm. and like show a kind of interest in nurturing that talent and then sophia does a lot of like producing a lot of executive producing so i think like she kind of does that to an extent and someone who's amazing at doing it is barry jenkins like he's constantly uplifting the next generation of filmmakers and, and new talent and i think that is that is the best way to be as a filmmaker if you can bring other people up with you and try and like open the doors and you know not kind of um keep it to this rarefied group of people who can you know only they can possibly dean to sit behind the camera and and direct actors so um i think that's one area that i think like there's so much room for improvement and obviously as critics you know we spend a lot of our time championing these new filmmakers but that doesn't mean i want to abandon all my old faves as well i kind of want to want to have it have it both ways i want to respect the old guard and kind of make sure we're giving like credit to all these people coming through constantly because there are like people like charlotte wells for example like you know um she has such an incredible perspective but then you look at the films that influenced her like like somewhere like Copper's work um like jane campion's work and it's like we kind of um needed these filmmakers to, in order to expire the next lot of filmmakers so um yeah certainly like i i don't think there's any need to throw the baby out with the bath water as my mum would say um i think it's just a case of like trying to be mindful of these limitations and um Just be open, you know, Mm. like be Mm. open to the experiences that they're trying to depict. I mean, I I can't wait to see her take on Priscilla Presley. I'm so excited to see Mm. kind of how she's envisioned that, especially after Elvis. Because I I imagine this is just going to be the complete opposite because she's, the opposite of Baz Luhrmann. She's not bombastic. Of course, so. <laughs> she, that, that should be on the next poster. The opposite of Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> I love Baz Luhrmann. I really enjoyed Elvis. Oh, I loved Elvis.
0: Elvis was in my top ten. It was my one of my um, my favorite films of last year. It was the, the only film uh, I watched, saw at Cannes that I watched. I paid to watch again.
2: Oh, really? Which, I, yeah.
0: I, just I had haven't watched it
2: yet. Um, I'm going to rewatch it, maybe in time for the Oscars, uh, because it's uh, you know it's, it's done quite well with the nominations. So I might rewatch it. But yeah, I just had such a fun time with it, and yeah. I was really glad I didn't have to review it actually, because I was like, ah, oh, you know, sometimes it's nice to just enjoy a film and not have to think about it. So...
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, enjoy enjoying films and not having to think about them. That, that's uh, that's Baz Lerman in a nutshell.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so rare we get to do that, isn't it? As as, as like film writers, it's so rare I, I have to not have an opinion, not yeah. have like a public opinion. It's it's the greatest joy in the world to just watch something and think this is just for me. This is just it, it's purely quite, for my enjoyment.
0: <laughs> it's quite liberating. You're absolutely right. And there are <laughs> there are certain films I Never want to talk about, you know. There's uh, I was uh, it's something I mentioned uh, <laughs> t- yeah, in true postmodern fashion. I, t- I-, I tweeted about not wanting to talk about certain films, and someone said, Okay, what films I can just give <laughs> you give an example? <laughs> and I said, And my reply was, Blue is the warmest color, I don't want to talk about that film. i, I, well, I no, lo- why
2: don't you want to talk about it? It's like, for God's sake, keep yeah, seat yeah, seat that's it. exactly, yeah.
0: <laughs> but I just, just, I love that film, and I don't feel any need to to go into it further than that you
2: know yeah no no this is exactly it i think that sometimes it's nice to just have things that you love and you don't feel kind of the need to share your your reasoning and um that that is fine in my opinion um it was why i was kind of nervous about doing this book because i I think for a long time i didn't i had written one piece about no i'd written two Mm. pieces about sphere coppola at the time uh, both about the suicides and i was very nervous to write this book which was going to be kind of putting it all out there and opening Mm -hmm. myself up to criticism which is a a weird place to be in as a film critic to be suddenly the the subject of criticism um though people have been very nice about the book (laughs) not not saying I'm getting like hate mail or anything but um yeah it was a weird experience to kind of um suddenly have to not necessarily defend my opinions but just have to like think very critically about things I'd previously not like Something like The Bling Ring, something like Mario Antoinette, I'd never really had to think about them in a kind of critical context because I wasn't old enough to be a film critic when they came out, when I watched them for the first time. So it was a, a kind of weird thing to be like second guessing myself and thinking like, does this work in the context of a book? Rather than like a, a film review, does this is this going to kind of stand the test of time? Because you know, you put out a magazine, it's on the shelves for three months, you put out a book, it's it's there for years, hopefully. So, um, it was it, it, yeah, I felt a kind of like additional sense of pressure to like do justice and to be honest and open about my perspective on the films, but also kind of conscious that, um, it was forming this wider like history of her as an artist it's 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 a very specific and strange thing to put together a whole a whole book about one filmmaker and you spend and and you'll know this yourself like you spend so much time with them that you feel kind of like am I do I need to step away from this like get get Mm. some kind of perspective like it's Mm. it it is it is a really like a daunting and uh, fascinating experience, but at the end of it, you do feel like you know them, and it's like I, I don't know you. Like, I don't know Sophia Coppola. Um, but I was going to, I was going you... <laughs> to ask you about
0: that. I wanted to ask you about that because, um, yeah, I mean, why? What was your, what was your thinking about not? I mean, did you approach her? Was it something like that, or was it? Did you think I would prefer to just write this from my own standpoint? And
2: yeah, so um. With the other two books, um, other three books by this point. So Abrams had the first, the very first one they did was the Cohen Brothers book. And the Cowan mm. Brothers are obviously notoriously kind of difficult to get hold of. And mm. they don't do a lot of interviews. And um, I think at the time they were making Buster Scruggs as well. So it was kind of like they just weren't around. So it was out of necessity that um, Adam Naiman didn't get to speak to them. Um, and that was fine. The book came out great. And they were able to do so many amazing interviews around it. It didn't really feel like you were missing that. And then uh, similar with poor Thomas Anderson, I think he was busy shooting um, the uh, Phantom Thread. And mm. uh, uh, Fincher, I think, was doing Mank at the time. So the, it, there was always just a project in the way with the other books. But um, the filmmakers always knew. They knew they were happening. We got in touch with the agents. And the agents were always like super um supportive and helped set up a lot of interviews and, and and all the filmmakers gave the books their blessing so the coens and pta and fincher all like said this is we are happy with this um, it's not like an official you know official products but like they were all happy with it being made which is good and i think a lot of that comes from the fact that like they knew little white lies and were happy about little white lies being involved so um we started off like from a from a good place and it happens that um Sabia Coppola's agent is also Paul Thomas Anderson's agent. So um, she is amazing. She re- really like veteran PR and um, she uh, was delighted that we were going to do it because she loved the poor Thomas Anderson book and, and Paul Thomas Anderson loved the Paul Thomas Anderson book. So, um, yeah, so she was really, really amazing in setting everything up for us. And Sophia was delighted like straight away she was i mean i'm i I, all this i was getting secondhand from the agent but she said like oh we're really happy it's a female writer because a lot of people have suggested this in the past doing a book on her but it's always been male writers there's never been anyone who's approached with this kind of proposition before so they were really happy and we were always going to do it regardless of whether or not we got sign off the book was always going to happen but we knew because the other three didn't have interviews with the filmmaker. This one wasn't going to have one either so and the Bong Joon-ho book that came after as well was a similar thing like he he was aware of the book and knew it was going to happen but he is not involved in the book because we just found that it would feel a bit too much like an endorsement um to mm. kind of have a big career interview and I also find with Sophia like she she has always struck me as quite a shy person and mm. her interviews I don't think that and, they necessarily as interesting as the films like I love I love hearing her speak but I think sometimes she maybe puts it all out on the screen so we don't Mm. really necessarily need she's not someone like Paul Thomas Anderson or Dave Fincher who can talk to the cows come home about their process and Mm. you know why every shot looks the way it does I think that she's much more kind of um cerebral and you know kind of like um it's all internal with her so we knew that she approved the book um but she wasn't going to be in the book in any capacity um which meant it was mostly about finding the right kind of people the voices around her to bring in so people that had worked with her and um she again like Sophia and her agent was so good at like setting that stuff up like we got kirsten done for half an hour which is she was in the middle of um uh, the press campaign for power of the dog had literally just been at venice so so she was she was amazing to be available and make herself available and give me time and be so generous and it was the same with all like all sophia's collaborators like philip the sword her cinematographer and brian weitzel they were so accommodating and so um happy to be involved and They, you know, it would be oh, I've got half an hour, and they'd give me a ring, and it'd be like an hour later. They'd be like, okay, I should probably get going now. So they were so kind of like, just delightful and and happy that there was going to be something big on Sophia, and they were so generous. Like Philip was sending me um, photos from uh, the uh, productions, and Brian as well, and and Sophia's uh, on set photographer Andrew Dome, who's absolutely he's just made a film of his own actually, but um, he sent me a ton of press like. Uh, the photos from on set and he said to me um yeah just use what you want just credit me wow. and i was like do you, do you not want paying <laughs> and he's like no, no no it's fine just like just just use the credit and i was like well. <laughs> you know kind of um wow. i was very like very fortunate that she works with this just amazing like incredibly generous group of people who are just such big fans of her that they want to kind of talk about their work together and they want to be involved in a big career project there's no hint of any sort of like talking head style fallout you know it's all right, kind right. of like everyone just can't wait to chat about how much of a good time they had working with them
0: oh that's brilliant and I think it is important to recognize that you know this is a big Abrams do these beautiful big books um, it's not easy getting a book written about a director um, there aren't that many directors out there who publishers will take a chance on and, and to to be the writer of the Sophia Coppola Abrams book is an amazing achievement. I think you've done a wonderful job. It's, and and it, is, it is the one time, as you were saying about print journalism, that lasts for a few weeks, few months, maybe. But uh, a book like this is is where coppola studies will begin uh in you know for, for many many years it will be the you know it will be the where you you'll have to have read this in order to start thinking and considering it's considering it so i think it's a, a marvelous thing in that in that sense
2: that's not scary at all the idea of people having to like study and just prove me and stuff that's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) but i mean it is i also something that i I wanted one of my first conversations about this book um and it sounds very earnest but uh, i am quite an earnest person so it it fits but i I wanted the book that i never had when i was 16 i wanted like i wanted this to be the book you buy because you've seen the virgin suicides and you loved it and you want to know who Sophia Coppola is so for some in some ways it's kind of like a an overview more and for the mm-hmm. kind of hard, hardcore cinephiles, it's probably not going to be like, you know, the, there's a lot of stuff that i probably already be aware of, but um, I have had so many teenagers and especially at the screenings I was doing, it, it was, it was so, It was the loveliest thing in the world to see so many teenage girls and teenage boys as well, like come up to me with their parents and they were very like shy and were like, oh, I just, you know, I really love Sophia Coppola. And there was one girl who came with her grandparents in L.A. and and she was kind of like hid behind them like didn't want to really talk to me. And I was like signing her book. And it's just it. It's really lovely to think that this could be someone's like gateway into the world that I loved so much and, and still love as well. Like I, I, I like the idea of having these formative kind of texts that make you want to be a writer or make you want to study film or make films. And that sounds very lofty, but if, if I could do that for, you know, kind of one of the teenager give them this feeling that like yes, yeah, someone else gets it then like that is that was always my end goal and I'm lucky that I was just asked to do it in such a kind of lavish fashion with such you know beautiful design work like uh, Tersha Nash who designed it is just absolutely like blew me away with kind of every detail she wasn't even a Sophia fan when we started working on the book she'd seen right. I think one of her films. so to be able to kind of translate my words and and my vision despite not really knowing what I was talking about a lot of the time yeah. I think it's just yeah it's just kind of incredible
0: yeah absolutely no I didn't mean it in any way for it to sound like uh <laughs> you're in the academic now you're in the academic stratosphere no I I, I uh, that comes as well obviously but uh but yeah no I mean I just mean like that the books on the on the shelves of the of the sort of film section of waterstones mm. there, there aren't you know it, it's a pretty i mean i know from doing this podcast I, this is a niche of a niche of a niche if you like um so to, to the the advantage of that is is that you know if you get to write one of these books then you're you know, you're having that word. You're 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 contributing to the legacy. It doesn't surprise me at all that um, the agents are, are are pleased. And and uh... well, I've just noticed in the background, you've got an Annette poster on your wall as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um...
0: We're we're on the same page with everything.
2: <laughs> well, there's a house that Jack built one next to it, so I don't
0: know. <laughs> oh no! no. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Shots it's fired. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I I do find it very funny that like in my in my flat it's like a net house that Jack built. Um yeah there is now a Nan Golden poster up, so there is a woman on the wall, but I was like, man, yeah, it's like walking into like a film brace flat at the moment. Like <laughs> have to like get get some women up on the wall. But I do have um yeah, no, I'm just looking again. There's a Magnolia poster and an uncut gems one as well. It's so like it is bad, but um there's also a Lynn Ramsey poster and the letter that Sophia sent me when she got her copy of the book. So there is like some female oh, representation up there. <laughs> brilliant.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, talking about gateway. Uh, wait a second. I was going to say gateway drugs, Great gateway <laughs> books, <laughs> which, which let's face it, it, the analogy doesn't have to be uh, lab- labored <laughs> too much to, to work. Um, what would be a recommended film book that you'd be able to give our, our listeners?
2: Oh God. Um I actually, having recently got my copy, A friend of mine a very i i sound awful like recommending my friends books but i do think it's a really good book and it's also relevant to sphere copper um my friend charles romesco has just published his second book which is called the color of film mm. and it's out beginning of february in the us and i think beginning of march oh no beginning of february uk beginning of march us and it's uh, the story of film through 50 color palettes from films so mm. it's it's a really like I think engaging way of looking at film that I think we talk about a lot and we see visually, but there's maybe not a ton um, to buy in kind of a bookstore. Uh, so it looks really nice on your on your coffee table, but it's also just like a really fun and expansive look at the use of film, at uh, use of colour in film, and how that's changed over time, how it hasn't changed, and kind of why filmmakers use the colours they do and, and things that reoccur so that would be my recommendation uh, not not a formative experience but hopefully again I hope it will be for for, for other readers and um, it's yeah I mean it's always nice as well to support kind of indie publishing I think with these uh, with these books as well.
0: And that will be available on Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs>
2: bookshop.org. Yes, I know. I've got, I've
0: got my own. I've got a writers on film, bookshop.org shopfront that I oh, set up right at the beginning. <laughs> and do you know how many copies of people have bought? Zero. <laughs>
2: <laughs> absolutely not yeah i was telling everyone when my book came out i was like i i know it's cheaper on amazon but can you just buy it anywhere else yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Just, i don't even i don't get royalties either so i'm just kind of like well you know d- at the end of the day it, it goes into someone's pocket but not mine so <laughs> yeah
0: yeah poor poor bezos poor jeffrey
2: <laughs> he's poor. fine <laughs> he's, he's down to his last
0: hundred billion, I think. <laughs> um, uh, poor Elon. Elon's the one I'm worried about. I stay up uh, nights worried about Elon. <laughs> oh, there's a guy who needs a Sophia Coppola film. <laughs> Cheer him up. Um, listen, Hannah. Thank you so much for uh, for talking to me. It's been an absolute uh, blast. I loved reading your book and and uh, and likewise having this conversation.
2: Uh, well, I could. Yeah. It's like, thank you for having me.
0: Okay, that was my conversation with Hannah Strong about her book on Sofia Coppola. Her recommended book was Charles Bromesco's book on the colour of film. I'm going to see if I can reach out to Charles and get him to come on the podcast as well. Uh, As a guest, that gives me an opportunity to read the book as well. It sounds fascinating. So that recommendation went down well. Um, Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at DrJonti, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. Thanks very much to Ellie Atkins for the music. Thanks to Ali Howard for the design and the look of the site and uh, thanks to you dear listener uh, for, for spending your time with us today